We apologize in advance for chewing sounds on this podcast because Eugene opened a fresh pack of Haribo gummies. Was Haribo like right legit now. the OG? Like when you were growing up, is that the pack we were eating? Are you asking me for like facts or are you asking me like my subjective experience? My subjective experience is that Haribo is the OG. Even in the U.S.? This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash For Discord access, exclusive newsletters, product discounts, shop discounts, and more. Let's get into it. I don't know about the U.S. That's what I'm saying. I like, remember eating gummies in the U.S. I was when too I had young. Gummy bears. I don't think my parents gave me gummies. But like when we were in Hong Kong, we got uh, peach rings a lot. Haribo mm. peach rings. When I was in the States, we used to eat trolley. No idea what that is. Trolley's did another you, gummy brand. Did you know it was Vans Checkered Board Day? Are we sponsored? We're not sponsored, but I can't help but have this like shoved right in my face. There's a little kiosk across from the radio booth and it's in preparation of vans checkerboard day when is vans checkerboard day tomorrow i did not know it's tomorrow are we supposed to celebrate uh, uh apparently by wearing vans. vans i don't have checkerboard vans though can i wear my non-checkerboard I even, vans i have one pair of vans and i never wear them i don't wear sneakers that often oddly enough <laughs> Because of all of your connections in the sneaker world that might get pissed at you. For no, one those those connections have evaporated. So I no evaporated. longer. Evaporated. Yeah. Interesting choice of words. And I also have made it a conscious decision to just not really be that guy anymore. Oh, cutting not, ties. Well, it's just like. Drawing I, lines I, in I, the you, sand. You, you realize that you have to upkeep some sort of social media presence to be considered an influencer you do upkeep a social media presence that is almost exclusively photos of hong kong street scenes candid but i don't do it anymore random uh. social gatherings and really long rambly think pieces i've lost interest in all of that so i think it's time to it's delete time to, delete the account is that it what's yeah, gonna I happen don't, i don't know anyways it's gonna be a dog account i actually Hutch run a lot only. of other people's social media accounts and I enjoy doing that more than I enjoy running my own. What does that say about it? I don't know what that says that you want the job of a social media manager. You use other people's influencer dreams as entertainment. Well, they're kind of meme accounts of other people. You like making fun of people. That's what I love making fun of people. You love the good burn. I love trolling people. Yeah. Yeah. Or I like I like self-deprecating humor. Or just like you're not self-deprecating if you're running someone else's account. You're deprecating them. Or it's just I like how would you describe my caption writing for such accounts as mail and doing things? Troll is accurate, I think. You're a troll. I like I like to assume some sort of persona where it's like just so dumb that it's smart. 
What is the what's the definition of that? I'm not about to say that you are so dumb that it's smart. Like the caption I'm writing sorry, is so dumb friend. that it's smart. Anyways, let's move on. Let's get this going. Oh man. Let's see if this makes it into the cut. You are ending the term. I'm ending my first semester as a teacher very soon, in about two weeks. How do you feel about it? Weird. Was it easier than you thought? No. Harder than you thought. Pretty Different. Much. Harder and different. It, it has been difficult, but not unenjoyable. It is this weird combination of having been difficult and yet really satisfying. Very rewarding, despite being difficult and anxiety-inducing. Well, and on we'll g- one hand, it doesn't seem like I have a very heavy workload, but I use so much more of my brain than I used to. What part of teaching will get easier next semester and going forward? Definitely scheduling because now I have a much better idea. I mean, this is true for every job. You get familiar with the cadence of the year and many jobs have a somewhat predictable schedule, like an annual schedule, like certain things will happen at a certain month. And if you can anticipate that in advance, then it just helps you prepare. And this is just like a fact, which is why your second year in job usually becomes easier because you work out, you know, boring things like how the schedule works and logistics and stuff like that. So I can say like for a given that that will be easier. The thing that is difficult or that I personally find complex and challenging about teaching is the human relationships, about having a teacher-student interaction. And that doesn't get easier because the students change. And also you need to understand as quickly as possible everyone's personality. So you kind of need to know how to best communicate with them, right? Yeah. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. What do you say? Uh, it's that- kind of like being a waiter or a waitress, I guess, right? Because you, yeah. you have such an on the fly, constant flow. You're figuring out, okay, or how DJ. is this person feeling? Yeah. How, you know, do you best Like, do you leave them alone? Them? Do you offer them more service? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What do they need at this moment? It is kind of like, weirdly, yeah, it is kind of like being in the service industry. Well, you're servicing people for education, so, right? I don't think it sounds great, honestly, because there's this like whole negative connotation when you talk about education as a commodity yeah as a type of consumer good and students being equivalent to like the restaurant customer because then it becomes oh so then do the students have all the power and they demand whatever they want and therefore you give it to them and that's not the case right like oftentimes in the position of being a teacher you say things that actually students don't love to hear. You give them deadlines, you give them assignments, you give them feedback and critique on their work, but also it is, it's for a bigger picture good, right? Yeah. All right, should we get going? You or me. You're the one that has more visibility on both articles, so which one makes more logical sense? I think my one. Okay, go ahead. Eugene's a little bit in the dark about what I'm talking about today. Good thing I know a little bit about everything going on in this world. That's true. You're 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 fine. Honestly, it's not so. Oh, complex I was never afraid. Don't worry. Don't, don't roll your eyes at me. I don't even know why I bother. All right, because the main article, which we usually reference one or two articles, the main thing that I'm referencing is a podcast episode. It comes from the Curbed Podcast. Nice try. And this season was all focused on the interior. And this episode in particular is about the mattress. All right. So the podcast starts by talking about Thomas Edison, 
and I didn't know this, maybe some people do, is that Thomas Edison really believed that you could sleep less. He was the sort of person that thought you should only sleep four to five hours a day and that there was no scientific support for the benefits of sleep. He has been proven scientifically wrong. This, this episode is not about debunking the effects of sleep. And then the podcast episode moves on into talking about mattresses having been evolved into a souped up wellness product in the sense that the mattress is advertised by very many companies as the key to unlocking better sleep performance and in turn our own performance on a day to day level. Some more facts. There are now 150 mattress in a box companies in the U.S. Uh, there's an That's interview. a lot. It's a lot. It's a hell of a I, I lot. So you know the type, like Casper, Purple. Did you hear about Casper recently? No. They happened? just got acquired and it was a fraction of what they raised within the last, between now and the last round anyway. So basically they went at a heavy discount to some like no name PE fund. Anyways. I mean, this is one of my reasons for even clicking on this episode and listening to it, because as people who do podcasts and listen to podcasts, you've all probably heard the mattress ads yeah. on podcasts. I actually sleep on a mattress in a box brand that has now shuttered its doors in Hong Kong, I think. Like it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, interesting. But for me, it doesn't really matter. Right. Well, that's important. This is important. Commodities. What you just said. Why does it not matter to you? It doesn't matter. About the mattress. There's no, there's no sort of like brand affinity. I don't get any social currency from it. There's like, it's, and they're all so difficult to rate in terms of performance. Like it's so subjective that it was always going to be commoditized. So like 150 brands are all built off the back of probably a few front runners that were able to generate a massive valuation based off of like some rickety foundation that yeah. obviously has proven that it's hard to create a profitable business around. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is what I got interested in because on the podcast episode, which by the way is hosted by Avery Truffleman. Oh, nice. Who was formerly at 99PI and we have done an interview with on Macon a couple years back now. And the where it goes is that she interviews a couple of experts. One is a Dr. Mir Krieger, who is a sleep disorder expert, and says that poor sleep doesn't come from bad mattresses. So your sleep actually is not at all significantly impacted by the type of mattress you have. And it's just interesting to me that it is a, a consumer item where there is a lot of like hype and marketing lingo and this whole, you know, triple foam, quadruple yeah. foam, spring coil in a spring, whatever. You get it. But actually it makes no difference. Yeah, because the according base. According to sleep experts. I mean, yeah, the baseline for a mattress just means you need to be able to fall asleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, if you think about it, like humans didn't need a mattress to fall asleep in the first place. Precisely. And essentially, you know, these doctors that Truffleman spoke to say that the interesting thing about sleep is that it's kind of superstitious. Not superstitious like voodoo, but that sleep has to do mostly often with your state of mind. Yep. And so if you believe that your mattress helps you fall asleep, then it will help you fall asleep. And if you don't believe that your mattress helps you sleep, then it doesn't help you sleep. And it's as straightforward as that. And it does not have to do with 
price tag on it or the material of it or the branding and identity unless that's something that you believe personally. Yeah. yeah. So the, you know, $5,000 price tag only makes a difference if you think it makes a difference. Yes, exactly. But it doesn't fundamentally make a difference. So I thought that's quite interesting from a consumer item perspective, because I don't know how to draw this connection. Like sleep is important. I would say that as a fact. Sleep is important. It does actually impact your day to day life. And yet it can be influenced just by your state of mind, by how you think of things and not actually like the thing that you buy. It makes it difficult, honestly, like in that way that you there essentially, even if you have lots of money, you cannot fix your sleep problem. You can't buy. I mean, you can fix it, but you need to look in the right places. Right. Which is like not consumer goods, basically. Well, no, it can be consumer goods. It could be a sleep tracker, right? It could be like the vitamins and the supplements you take before bed. It could be like a white noise machine. It could be earplugs. It could be an eye mask. You're talking to someone that actually has a pretty strong opinion on good sleep. All right. Tell me yeah. your strong opinion on well, good sleep. Well, I'm saying is that like you can definitely create behavioral changes facilitated by product to help you sleep better. So in fact, it is a consumer good. But I question whether it's actually the consumer goods that result in better sleep. Well, let's, Or if it's just that your belief you, in this ritual leads to better sleep. But then it, I guess at that point, it doesn't matter. But what I'm... Do you see what, what I'm saying? Is I, that the I sleep do. tracker does not actually, by using you it... You could scientifically compare it though. Like let's say... For me, when I before I go to bed, sometimes I take melatonin. I tape my mouth shut because I'm a I'm a mouth breather. <laughs> I have earplugs and I have a sleep mask. So you could easily just compare what happens when I remove, you know, one or the other, or remove something from the equation. And I actually found that in general, there's certain things that change my sleep. Some might even give me, like for example, if I take melatonin, like theoretically. I'm not discounting that it works for you, but. The thing about sleep, even though it is objectively important for all humans, the experience of what leads to good sleep is very subjective. And I don't personal. think so. I think it's, it's something you can scientifically prove. Like I you can do studies on all that stuff. I disagree. Oh, my, now you're you, no, it's like it's 100 percent something you can prove scientifically. Just just have a, a situation where you sleep with. With and without this variable. No, I right? know what you mean, but I'm saying what works for you isn't going to necessarily work for me. Correct. But you can arrive at a process. Like, for example, let's say that you react poorly to melatonin, as some people do. Some people yeah, like no, no, no. don't what feel I'm good the next is that day. Your, whatever we say works for us is not a solution that you can just apply to To everyone. a degree, yes. Like, and I say that because I think that in general that... Okay, the fine. There might be like one out of 50 people for whom it works. We're non-responders. I'm, not that, I'm not saying that your routine works for no one other than Eugene, but it's not like whatever. There's no magic recipe that is going to lead to everyone sleeping but better. But there are certain things that are like tied to physical, like so there are certain things that are tied to physiology. Right? right, like the temperature like, of the like room. melatonin and audio and temperature I accept. But yeah. I think, well, I suppose for me, like the science is not very interesting for me to talk about. And I think the interesting for me to talk about is the ritual part of it. Yeah. That is different per person. Well, I think it's relaxation, right? Everyone has different ways of 
relaxing. Someone might play Candy Crush for like half an hour and that's relaxing. Yeah. With a blue screen filter. Or I had I don't a know. cousin who used to play TV shows in the background until he fell asleep and would just leave the TV shows running. Yeah. Just broadcasting it. So what's interesting to me is this idea of individualized sleep patterns and also coming from the podcast that it is acceptable in a society that considers everyone should be sleeping in like approximately the same way. So the podcast goes into this idea that over time, over history, we shifted towards uh, this cultural norm of sleep that's actually kind of weird or weird just historically speaking, right? Which is that you have your own bedroom and your own bed and then you lie down and you sleep mm-hmm. for eight to nine hours. and. The podcast in some ways raises the question whether we should be more accepting of different ways of sleep, different patterns, different locations, different but times. Who's the one? Are you just saying like in general sleep or are you saying that people have been pushing back in terms of how we get good sleep away from mattresses? You know what I mean? I think that's what I'm trying to understand is that. In general, I don't think anyone's ever telling someone how to fall asleep is the only people you provide insight into how to better sleep are those that complain about sleeping. I think it's that there is a little bit of I mean, as most things in society, there is some societal judgment if you do things weirdly. Right. So if you say that, oh, I just have a uh, even in my sentence, the way I use the word just was already like societal judgment, but like oh, I use a sofa bed in my living room Mm -hmm. and I don't need a bed, then that would most likely be perceived as kind of odd and raise the question of like, how can you get good sleep that way? Got it. Or for example, we have a mutual friend who often sleeps in the morning. So he stays up late and then he'll sleep from 8 a.m. to 4 4 p.m. instead. And I think a lot of people would find that concerning. Or weird, yeah. Yeah, or weird, right? But then that in itself could be tracked back to a lot of things like that inherently is unhealthy. Do you think so? Humans would never theoretically be awake at those hours of the day because there's no sunlight. But what if he feels well rested? I would argue that that lifestyle that he's living is probably not the one that's most conducive to what is like innate and biological. I don't know. I don't feel super strongly, but I do feel like. I just feel there's so much science that 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 drives us that it's almost like, okay, I think 80% of it can be deciphered by science and the other 20%, yes, I'll leave a little bit room up for debate. But most of it, I think, is something that can can revolve around the outcome of science. And I know that's like kind of flies in the face of what you mentioned earlier, but I think the things that are related to our body have very little room for debate but we just said that you could sleep on any mattress at all or but that's different though mattress that's different though because that's related to personal comfort right like i think once you so the personal for you the personal comfort thing isn't one of the scientific factors it's not because like some people are like stomach sleepers some people are back sleepers but they still fall asleep i think the any which way you are able to enter the state of sleep is actually the most important so i get one way i look at it is like if you think that you sleeping for 45 minutes three times a day is enough to kind of keep you going and you sleep a minimum amount of hours that you think that's ideal. I would also argue, well, you don't know if it's ideal if you don't 
compared to actually something where you're sleeping, let's say eight hours a day, right? Under certain conditions of like the, the room's like the right temperature. I mean, I also said that I, be- I strongly believe that you have to get a certain amount of sleep. Anyway, I think the science, I shouldn't have brought it up with you. I knew you were going to have hard, hard arguments with this. I, I think that there are moments in which we agree, actually, but there are fine points and there is a disagreement. What is probably more interesting for people who are listening is not to have us quibble about data that we don't have on yes. hand. But instead, I think to talk about bringing it back to mattresses as a consumer good. There is one thing that is interesting about, which this is why I said my subject is somewhat related to your subject, is that sleep has turned more recently into an industry in which companies claim, actually it's kind of similar to you, that you can optimize your sleep performance and they make a lot of money off of people who are attracted by this promise that the purchase of their item will lead to better sleep, better performance. Yeah, like my sleep tracker. Yeah. Like my sleep tracker ring. They might work. They might not work. Okay. But many people are allured by just the promise of it working. And that's like why there are all of these like mattress in a box companies and other sleep paraphernalia companies that have raised lots of money, right? They tap into a human desire that maybe I can perfect, you know, this one third of my day when I am unconscious. One thing like that. So, so this actually kind of is a little bit of a tangent, but Beyond the fact that the sleep has become a really big industry, I'm also curious how much of the mattress movement that we see right now is actually because of just the delivery mechanism. As in, because I'm making this up, but like some factory figured out a way to like shrink wrap mattresses to make it easier to deliver. That became the reason to start a mattress company versus, oh, I want to solve sleep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they do cover this if you are interested. I mean, briefly, but essentially when technological advancements changed from cotton and springs mattresses to foam mattresses, that's when mattress in a box companies started because people very quickly realized that foam mattresses can be vacuum packed. Actually, according to the podcast, you can actually vacuum seal all types of mattresses nowadays. And so there's like Mattresses made from absolutely any combination of physical materials that are yeah. vacuum sealed and sent in boxes, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. Fundamentally, it doesn't matter like what the object is. Yeah. But that is the, the reason for the, the original catalyst for the rise in the companies was, as you say, that technological ability. And yeah, it, it wasn't like people. Showrooms and people yeah, no longer like... felt like they needed a showroom. From a company perspective, the other key thing that keeps these companies going is the clause that you can return the mattress Mm. after a hundred days. So those are the two main aspects. I just, it's crazy how they got this far. Cause like first and foremost, I think it's riding on what I just said, like this ever going, everlasting allure that I might be able to bring about perfect sleep. No one looked at the underlying business and was like, Hey, you know what? This is not economically sustainable. Oh, people only buy a mattress every 10 years. Oh, you know what I mean? Like there's so yeah. many of these things that like was suggested. It's something you can build a business around, but like the valuation of it is something that you should definitely call into question. 
I think also it's interesting that the rise of all these mattress companies led to people really focusing on their physical environment, contributing to the quality of their sleep. Uh, Even though we went back and forth on what really leads to good sleep, we agree that you should get a lot of sleep, right? Yeah. Like eight hours instead of four. So it seems that people know that they need better sleep and they think that if I just spend money on the product, it will fix the problem. When actually you have to do more fundamental to, work, like rearranging your schedule yeah, to find time to sleep. Exactly. You don't need to actually spend the money on the expensive or not so expensive mattress in a box company. You need to rejigger your schedule. Should we move on? Let's do it. My subject this week is how our online shopping obsession choked the supply chain. So this was a piece that appeared in a GQ article that was written by Cam Wolf, who interviewed Christopher Mims, who just penned a new book called Arriving Today from Factory to Front Door, Why Everything Has Changed About How and What We Buy Around Logistics and the Issues We're In. It's obviously a quite a long title that in its very essence, just tries to break down the current challenges we're in right now due to supply chain and logistical challenges. And in short, just look around. I think in a lot of places, the things that were so readily available in the past in some markets are now very hard to come across, which is due in part to a lot of different things. It's you know changes in demand. It's also in relation to the increase in just the way things are delivered. Um, But what I think is also really interesting around this is that logistics are one of those things that you take for granted. And then when it's broken, it's really broken. Right. And I think that's maybe a, a testament to the infrastructure and amount of money invested in logistics, um, but also perhaps building a system that worked at a certain point in time. But I think it was just always maybe right on the edge where like if anything broke, then the whole thing would get backed up. Is there anything that you consume or used to consume regularly that is now really hard to get your hands on? I'm not a good person to ask. Like food or anything? No. That's Okay, that's pretty good then. I've not been affected. Honestly, <laughs> for us, it's been pretty straightforward, to be honest. Like, Do you mean you personally? I mean, in, in Hong Kong, we haven't really had too many logistical issues, per oh, se. Oh, oh, you mean for both of us? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't really noticed it. Well, one thing I do see like on Reddit a lot, not not a lot, but I've seen it is that some people go to grocery stores and the shelves are empty or even worse. It's like they put up these fake posters or some something that shows like it's a full shelf when in reality there's nothing or they'll stock a shelf with the same item over like five, five rows just to show that it's full. Yeah, I've seen these photos. Yeah. And I've also seen online a lot of small shops saying that please expect delays so a lot of creators and owners saying that if you order now it's going to be eight weeks even or more depending on where you live so there's a lot of that around so i think one of the interesting things that come from this book also is because it's a byproduct of the pandemic right but we're also still in the pandemic so i find those really interesting when someone's able to write a time-sensitive piece 
But on top of that, it's a book. I mean, it's because it's been two years. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how long it takes to write a book. One of the things I found interesting is that how fundamental behavioral shifts also exasperated this. So, for example, if we're spending more time at home, we, we might think, oh, maybe we should renovate our home. And obviously that has led to a slew of other challenges like, yeah. you know, it's like lumber costs going up, the inability to get the right materials from China to help remodel your home. I think those are all really interesting. And then on top of that, there's a lot of things that are in some ways quasi supply chain related. So one example would be like, for the most part, I think that a lot of the footwear companies and I, one thing I forgot to mention is that this piece has a lot of uh, discussion around sneakers sneakers right gq obviously a little bit more of a fashion slant but i think that most brands have done a pretty good job or have been relatively shielded from supply chain issues um up until recently so what we're into probably like a year and a half a year almost two years into the pandemic and only most recently have i seen issues around uh, logistics. So for some of those companies, it's largely due to COVID outbreaks at factories, which led to things getting delayed. And I think those delays in themselves are kind of interesting because I think that, you know, when I've looked at and spoken to some of these brands, like in part, some are logistical issues that are more recent and other ones are maybe more demand issues in terms of their inability to sell sneakers because their demographic might have less disposable income, for example. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting that the article covers is just the different ways on both the consumer and supplier side that the pandemic has affected behavior. And you had mentioned an increase in the use of construction materials due to remodeling, but you could just casually think of many other things like people started cooking more. And so they were buying all this kitchenware and baking materials, which you might not think as one family would make a big difference. But if everyone is trying to acquire those items, then it starts to have an impact. Or at-home workout equipment, like last episode, we talked about Peloton. Things like that also magnified affect the ability of companies to provide things according to a schedule. Yeah. And I did find it super fascinating. I don't know if you were going to read this about how sneakers are affected beginning from like Step zero. Oh, I was actually going to read one of the first questions and first part of the answers. I thought this was really yeah. Good. So the question from GQ, let's say hypothetically that I've ordered a pair of sneakers and they're heavily delayed. What are the major factors contributing to that? Christopher Mims replies, your sneakers started life potentially as fracked natural gas in the panhandle of Texas, and then it's liquefied and shipped to China. There are these very specialized plastic manufacturers there that synthesize the hydrocarbons and natural gas into synthetic thread, which is then going to be woven into a special fabric. And only then does it go to wherever it's going to get sewn into something. If you think of that point as the beginning of the journey, it's not. In short, basically what he's saying is that don't think of the fabric as already the starting point of yeah. the sneaker's yeah, like life. You might think of a sneaker construction beginning with fabric in hand and then being assembled. But... That's the part for me. I mean, it was new news to me. I never really thought about it so much. But that you frack natural gas and then you have to ship that natural gas yeah. in a liquefied form to China yep. to turn into another material. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of these things that are big issues because it's, you know, to bring it back in, one of the big challenges in terms of logistics is like, obviously, there's an element of manpower needed. 
And that's one thing. Processes, management, all the other things, I think you can kind of just leave it as is because it's traditionally worked. But if you don't have the manpower or the expertise, that's when things start to fall apart. So one of the opening parts of this, they talk about the harbor pilot. So the harbor pilot is someone that's pretty important within this whole process. So when a big ship full of containers enters near the port, these guys drive out and help coordinate these boats to come in. But And on top of that, it's also a really dangerous job. But in terms of that, they're, they haven't been able to keep up with demand. And despite you know government mandates saying, hey, we're going to turn this into a 24-hour operation, they don't have enough manpower to actually run it 24 hours a day. So it's kind of a moot point. And I think that we've talked about this before and most recently in that not everything in this whole process is automated. So if for whatever reason, these guys are like, hey, I'm not interested in continuing this job, I'm going to step away, then that obviously creates a further bottleneck. Like you can't process things fast enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of interesting because like, what does the future mean? Like you kind of, you even before the pandemic, I think a lot of these last mile type services or people that required it were looking into automation. Like can something deliver this package without the need of a human? Right. And is this going to potentially ex- accelerate this? I think potentially, just like a lot of things have been accelerated um, because there's the potential that some of these people have found bigger and better things to do than just like working at a job they're not fulfilled at or it's too dangerous or whatnot. Yeah, the other part of this that was interesting to me is how far in advance things have to be planned for, which I think is quite different from maybe your and my day-to-day work and tasks, right? Yeah. Which is that you have to book shipping a year in advance or more. and that's that's why when something goes wrong it really goes wrong wrong (laughs) it's just like a huge backup and also the cost of the shipping containers also something that's increased in price so like that's why certain customers are paying more right and that's why inflation is increasingly a big issue because of these these challenges there's one answer here that I wanted to read that actually spoke about why we're in this predicament in the first place. And for MIMS, he gave two reasons. Companies pulled back on reserving shipping capacity at the beginning of the pandemic because they thought they were going to have a repeat of the Great Recession of 2008. But the opposite happened. Since about May of 2020, Americans have been on a shopping spree. The amount of money that people were spending on hospitality, vacations, or services, the amount that was reduced, the amount that we spent on goods almost exactly increased. So in short, all the money that was going towards hospitality, vacations, or services got plowed into consumer goods. Yeah. And obviously consumer goods require something different. They require you to, you know, get the item, logistics, all these other things, pack it, et cetera. So I think that's all things that definitely made this a much bigger issue. If you think about it, something like $100 billion worth of money has been put into like acquiring products, right? And that's almost a byproduct because people are just looking for ways to spend their money. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, I think what you need to think about it, like just the US stimulus checks, et cetera, like free money, technically free money. Yes, paid by taxpayers. Now put in the hands of people that, you know, you want to buy a pair of sneakers, you want to do whatever with it. Like that's all sloshing around in the US economy. Yeah. Why do you think your subject was important to talk about 
it's a topic that's interesting to me because it just hits on a lot of different things. It talks about sort of the hidden mechanics of how the world works, obviously logistics. It talks about consumer behavior, right? And it just also talks about like systems and management and how they pertain to anything and everything. Like obviously the entry point of this piece is through sneakers, but when you start like breaking it down, you kind of understand how the world works in greater detail. I mean, for me, I think it's like a fascinating way of looking and understanding how the world is like so fragilely put together in some ways, because if something goes astray, there's not really any contingency or there's no slack that can be picked up. I think if there's a similarity, at least the similarity that I saw in both of the things we are interested in, it's paying attention to why we buy and sell things and how those things happen. There's a lot of different motivations for purchases that are maybe subconscious or influenced by bigger movements like the pandemic that we don't even realize that we're doing. Like, I don't think we the regular person might not buy a pair of sneakers because they think, oh, you know, it's a pandemic and I haven't gotten to go on these experiences and I have extra money. So I'm going to spend on a pair of sneakers like I don't think you think that much about that purchase. But when you look at the trend, like that's that's what's happening yeah. in your behavior. And then also on the other flip side, you know, how people sell things, I think, is even if you and I were not big corporations, it's relevant to us as people who try to make money I, to think of how the business runs. I wonder what is the long term upside of people understanding how the world works through things that they care about. Obviously, like, let's say you care about sneakers and now you understand how the world works. Remember we talked about the Suez Canal ship that got stuck. Yeah. So that, for example, now put people on to how the world's logistical systems work. I mean, it's become a meme to say supply chain problems. It's such an easy way to like, you know, opt out. I, I saw that, I saw a brand that basically said, oh, we have to pull out of selling in this country because of supply chain problems. Well, I think it's, the part that's funny to me isn't that, you know, it's impacting businesses seriously, but it's funny that something that was previously like completely hidden from knowledge or attention has become something that's commonly understood enough to be the basis of jokes. And you ask the question, what happens when we have a better understanding of how the world works? In theory, you should become more careful about your actions. Yeah. And understand the ripple effect. Exactly. Maybe. Which is why you would, would be careful, actually, right? Because you know, you know how what your actions affect. I'm yeah, just saying, no, what I'm trying to theory, say is that like what's interesting is that we've often been taught that you're too small to have an impact, but maybe well, it sounds like side, we're saying that it does. Yeah, we are. That's what that I'm saying. Your decisions really do influence global movements. I'm not trying to big up any individual person, but that is the reality of like what happened at least in your topic when we're talking about you know the current global shipping conditions it's weird yeah should we cap things off that's a good place to wrap up if you are interested in hearing more about Megan, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture you can visit us at macon.com you can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms if you like this podcast you can do us a huge favor by supporting us on patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. 
become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.